Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off US versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. So, 20-year-old Antiochus, guess what? Well, first off, your brother Seleucus III is dead. So take a few seconds to go through the five stages of grieving. Okay, have you processed that? Because we're kind of on a timetable here. No more lounging around Babylon for you. Put down that PlayStation, pick up your spear, and let's go get you an empire. So what to do first? Well, how about those satraps in Media and Persia who just decided to revolt? Actually, it's bad form to start off your reign by dealing with a few pesky rebels. Let your subordinates take care of that while you go big, attacking Ptolemaic holdings in Coelsyria. And, oh wait, one more thing. Before you go, would you mind getting somebody pregnant? Thus began the glorious reign of the Seleucid king Antiochus III, who'd eventually come to be known as Antiochus the Great. Things were collapsing so quick around him, it was hard not to get swept up in the vortex. But the one thing that everyone agreed on was the need to conceive an heir. The lucky bride was Laodice, the daughter of the Seleucid ally, King Mithridates II of Pontus, and also, funnily enough, Antiochus' first cousin. Actually, in this story, it's probably just easier to let you know when somebody isn't someone else's cousin. It'll save us a lot of time. At this point, Antiochus' main supporters were men who'd served his murdered brother, his main advisor Hermaeus, and senior general Epigenes. He also had an elder cousin named Achaeus who was given command in Anatolia and tasked with continuing the Seleucid War against Pergamon. And, as I just mentioned, an army was sent east to put down the revolt while Antiochus marched on Coelsyria. There are several definitions of what Coelsyria may have actually meant, but I'm taking it to mean all the territories of Syria, Phoenicia, and Judea south of the Eleutheros River. Syria proper, to the north of the river, was Seleucid territory, while Coelsyria to the south was controlled by Egypt. For fans of bloodline, you can picture the river running at about the same latitude as Emesa. So, 
let's just say that none of Antiochus's first-year initiatives turned out particularly well. His generals were beaten by the rebel satrap Molon, his attack on Coel Syria went belly up, and though his cousin Achaeus made a strong showing in Anatolia against King Attalus I of Pergamon, he soon rebelled against Antiochus and proclaimed himself to be king. So, yeah, a pretty crappy first year. But then, as they sometimes do, the fates cut Antiochus a break. In 221 BC, the major rebellion of Molon was put down. The following year, an attempt by Achaeus to invade northern Syria collapsed due to mutinous troops, and he was forced to content himself with ruling Anatolia. These developments allowed Antiochus to return his attention to Coel Syria, which means it's time to cue the Fourth Syrian War. Antiochus was particularly encouraged by the fact that King Ptolemy III had recently died, and his young heir, Ptolemy IV, had a reputation as a weak ruler, dominated by his mistress and a few key advisors. Seleucid campaigns in 219 and 218 pushed Egyptian forces south past Gaza. But the rumors of Ptolemaic weakness were greatly exaggerated. In 217, Ptolemy IV showed up to personally lead his forces in the Battle of Raphia. The battle itself was huge, with well over a 100,000 troops taking part. It was also the only known historical instance of Asian elephants clashing with their African counterparts. But once the screams had died down, the blood stopped flowing, and the dust had settled, the result was a Seleucid defeat. Antiochus's loss meant Egyptian recovery of territories north along the coast, with the token, if symbolic, exception of Seleucia Pieria, which Antiochus was able to keep. But that was about it. Five years in, and Antiochus III was looking anything but great. What he needed was a solid win. And, unfortunately, the place he needed it from was the same place his father and brother had both failed. At this critical moment in 216, it all came down to Anatolia. After looking at all the angles, Antiochus realized that the only way he could outflank and outmatch his cousin Achaeus was by partnering with that great Seleucid rival, King Attalos I of Pergamon. Which, given the history, must have been a pretty tough pill to swallow. A deal of some sort was apparently made, Antiochus marched his army north and was quickly able to roll up Achaeus' forces all the way back to Sardis. A protracted siege and a bit of treachery delivered his cousin into his hands, and Antiochus III had him executed. It was an ugly win, but still a win, and luckily for him, it was also the start of a trend. For the next 16 years, from 212 to 196 BC, the campaigns of Antiochus III were basically one big victory montage. So go ahead and cue up Eye of the Tiger. 
During the first phase, Armenia, Parthia, Bactria, Western India, and the Persian Gulf all either submitted to or made alliances with the Seleucid king. And again, we're intersecting with Bloodline episode B24, the Yona kings. Because this was the time when Antiochus defeated the Bactrian king Euthydemus at the Battle of the Arius River, besieged him in his capital of Bactra, then married his daughter to Euthydemus's son to secure a lasting alliance. That son, Demetrius, would be the first Bactrian king to campaign into western India. In 204 BC, King Ptolemy IV of Egypt died and was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy V, who was barely six years old. Now that he had his mojo going, Antiochus III, who'd already taken the title of Magus, or the Great, thought it was just the perfect time for a little Seleucid payback. So for those of you keeping score, we're up to our fifth Syrian war. Antiochus's main targets, once again, were Ptolemaic holdings in Coel Syria. And in 200 BC, at the Battle of Panium, he secured a decisive victory. The Ptolemaic army was utterly destroyed, and the battle effectively put an end to the Egyptian presence in Syria. Now, you may recall that we started things off around 21 years ago with Antiochus getting his young wife pregnant. And the very tangible result of that act was his eldest son, Antiochus the Younger. At the Battle of Panium, Antiochus the Younger led an elite force of Seleucid cataphracts, who routed the Egyptian cavalry and attacked Ptolemaic lines from the rear. It's also worth noting that the whole concept of Seleucid cataphracts may have been adopted from the Bactrian heavy cavalry they'd fought a decade earlier. Anyway, the golden boy Antiochus the Younger was married off to his sister, Laodice, the first Seleucid brother-sister marriage, and all looked rosy for a bright dynastic future. With the Ptolemies driven out of Syria, Antiochus took the next logical step and focused his energies on driving them out of their seaside holdings in Anatolia. While he was at it, he also decided to capture a few independent Greek cities. And in 196, he crossed the Dardanelles to establish a foothold in Thrace. Like the dynasty's founder, Seleucus I, Antiochus the Great was well on his way to reforging Alexander's empire. And, like Seleucus, in his moment of triumph, the fates took a nasty turn. First, in 193 BC, came the death of his son, Antiochus the Younger. It was a heavy blow for the entire family, but for Antiochus III in particular. The only saving grace was that by now Antiochus had two other sons, the elder of whom, Seleucus, became the new Seleucid heir. Far more troubling was the danger posed by what historian Jake Nabel calls a group of Western barbarians at the head of an expansionist empire, otherwise known as the Roman Republic. And just what were the Romans doing up in Antiochus's business? Well, it had all started out with the pirate queen. 
In between Rome's two famous wars against Carthage, the Republic's eyes were first drawn east to deal with an age-old problem. According to Polybius, from time immemorial, the Illyrians had oppressed and pillaged vessels sailing from Italy. In 230 BC, their new queen, Tuta, gave her navy carte blanche to raid and plunder. As Polybius puts it, with general instructions to regard every land as belonging to an enemy. When some Italian merchants were attacked and killed, Rome sent two ambassadors to the queen to register their displeasure. After hearing them out, Queen Tuta basically responded, Look, I'll try to leave Roman citizens alone, but it's not the habit of Illyrian rulers to frown on a bit of honest piracy. One of the ambassadors got snippy, Tuta got bent out of shape, and the ambassador wound up dead, which prompted the first-ever Roman invasion of eastern territory. Short story short, Tuta was defeated and made a client queen with severely restricted authority. But the affair had put the Romans on a path toward greater engagement with the East. The engagement ramped up after the Second Punic War, when Rome waged a major campaign against King Philip V of Macedon. I haven't focused on Macedon much, but it had mainly been ruled by descendants of Antigonus One-Eyed and his son Demetrius the Besieger. In fact, King Philip V was Demetrius's great-grandson. Now, I mentioned that when six-year-old Ptolemy V took the throne of Egypt, Antiochus thought it was a great opportunity to attack Coel Syria. Well, Philip thought the same thing about Anatolia, and in 201 he'd invaded. He was eventually driven off. But his main opponents, King Attalus I of Pergamon and the leaders of Rhodes, quickly forged an alliance with Rome. Open conflict soon flared up over Philip's invasion of mainland Greece. And after a slow start, Rome gained the upper hand. By 196, a truce was signed where Philip abandoned all conquered territory and the Romans, for the most part, withdrew to Italy which seemed just a perfect, perfect invitation for Antiochus III to cross into Thrace. His western ambitions were encouraged by an exile who showed up at his court in 194, a guy named, let me see here, Hannibal of Carthage. In 193, Antiochus married his daughter Cleopatra to the young King Ptolemy V of Egypt giving him inside access to the Ptolemaic court, and also giving Egypt its very first queen named Cleopatra. Things seemed to be on a pretty positive trajectory, until the previously mentioned death of Antiochus the Younger and the following year, 192, when Antiochus invaded Greece. Rome and Antiochus quickly lined up behind their Hellenic proxies, the Achaean League and the Aetolian League, respectively, and the showdown was officially on. So, it's worth keeping a few things in mind. Rome was just coming off the Second Punic War and a major campaign against Macedon. 
It still had no professional standing army, and its generals only commanded troops for a handful of years at best. On the other hand, to quote historian Michael Taylor, Antiochus III had commanded armies for 30 years. While the Seleucid army also contained citizen militiamen, it also had a splendid professional corps, the 10,000 silver shields, and the two regiments of royal cavalry. Thus, despite recent Roman successes against Carthage and Macedonia, Antiochus entered the war confident of victory. But, well, we all know how things turned out, don't we? After major losses at Thermopylae and Magnesia, and the defeat of Hannibal's fleet off Sidae, Antiochus was eventually forced to submit to the Treaty of Apamea. Seleucid claims to Anatolia were abandoned, except for Cilicia, and the territory was mainly divvied up between Rome's allies, Rhodes and Pergamon. Antiochus was even forced to surrender his younger son, yet another Antiochus, to Rome as a hostage. It was a sobering defeat, and an end to his dreams of further Seleucid expansion. The following year, 187, the 54-year-old Antiochus III returned to his family's original power base in southern Mesopotamia. He confirmed his status as king of Babylon and received the gift of a new gold crown along with the original purple robes of King Nebuchadnezzar II, which, I have to say, is pretty frickin' awesome. It may have been a bit of recharge and recoup, but it definitely wasn't retirement. Both Parthia and Bactria had new kings, which meant Antiochus III had to show the flag and renew their vows of fidelity. But he also desperately needed money, mainly to pay the war indemnity forced on him by the Romans. So, as I mentioned in Bloodline episode B-34, while passing near the Temple of Bel in Elemius, he decided to make a withdrawal from its treasury. The locals understandably objected, and Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, was soon dead on the dusty ground. He was succeeded by his son Seleucus IV, who inherited most of the same problems. Though it's worth noting that, since agreements only affected the king who signed them, Seleucus wasn't technically bound to comply with the Treaty of Apamea. Unless Rome sent envoys to renew the agreement, which, oddly, they didn't do. So at least he had a bit of latitude, though, again, his younger brother Antiochus was still a Roman hostage. The vast majority of Seleucus IV's reign is usually characterized as laying low, which kind of makes sense considering his situation. Moving off in any direction, he risked being set upon by enemies from another, and he didn't have the cash or manpower to fight on multiple fronts. The situation eased somewhat in 180 BC, when King Ptolemy V was killed, supposedly to prevent him from launching a war against Syria. Upon Ptolemy's death, 
Egypt came under the effective rule of Seleucus's sister, Cleopatra, known as Cleopatra Syra, or the Syrian. The following year, Seleucus IV freed his brother Antiochus from Roman captivity by exchanging him for his own firstborn son, Demetrius. And, uh, Seleucus? What the hell kind of name is that? I mean, what are you, some kind of avant-garde performance artist? Let's just stick with Seleucus and Antiochus, okay? Wow. Things started getting a bit more complicated toward the end of Seleucus IV's reign. First, in 176, his sister Cleopatra Syra died in Egypt. Since her sons were still too young to rule, the Ptolemaic court was usurped by a group of ambitious advisors, who set their sights on recovering Ptolemaic Syria. Then, in 175, Seleucus IV died at the age of 42, which implies a shady cause. Even worse, he died without naming a successor. And since this is a critical moment, maybe the critical moment, in Seleucid history, I wanted to sketch out the terrain. As historian John D. Granger points out, the royal succession in the Seleucid family had been by direct succession from father to eldest surviving son for a century. So the rightful successor of Seleucus IV was Demetrius. But the ten-year-old Demetrius was still held captive in Rome. Seleucus IV's widow was his sister Laodice. Yes, the same Laodice who'd previously married his older brother, Antiochus the Younger. The new couple had a second son, also named Antiochus, who was only five years old. There was also Seleucus's chief advisor, a man named Heliodorus, who typically gets the blame for his premature death. And, last but not least, there was Seleucus IV's younger brother, Antiochus. Since getting freed from Roman captivity, Antiochus hadn't returned to Syria, but had decided to settle in Athens instead. And, learning of his brother's death, he sized up the situation. With Demetrius temporarily off the board, the most likely scenario, the most legitimate scenario, was a regency of the five-year-old Antiochus by his mother Laodice likely backed by the senior advisor, Heliodorus. But there'd never been a Seleucid regency, and the boy was second-born son anyway, which gave Antiochus sufficient leeway to consider other options. Enter Eumenes II. Eumenes was the son of Atalos I, the most-of-the-time Seleucid nemesis, who died at the age of 72 back in 197 BC. Eumenes had fought alongside Rome at the Battle of Magnesia, which had earned him the bitter enmity of both Antiochus III and his son Seleucus IV. Since then, Seleucus had supported attacks on Pergamon by the kings of Bithynia and Pontus the last of which was only narrowly defeated by Eumenes. Seeing a chance to sow some discord within the Seleucid ranks, 
Eumenes II invited Antiochus to come visit him in Pergamon. Once there, the two men, along with Eumenes' brothers, worked up a plan to get Antiochus safely into Syria. As Granger lays out, he was taken as far as the border, presumably one of the tourist passes, and sent on his way into Syria with a bodyguard, money, a diadem, and the royal insignia. Reasonably enough, the rest was up to him. Antiochus did not throw away his shot. Within two months of his brother's death, Antiochus had seized power in Antioch under the throne name of Antiochus IV. He executed the advisor Heliodorus for poisoning his brother Seleucus, made himself regent of his brother's son, the five-year-old Antiochus, and married his brother's widow, Laodice, for good measure. Yes, his own sister, Laodice, who'd already been married to two of his older brothers. And once he and Laodice had their own son, another Antiochus, Antiochus IV had his nephew Antiochus killed. And I'm guessing that was the end of the honeymoon phase. The seizure of power by Antiochus IV was the first real Seleucid usurpation, and the effect it had on royal legitimacy would end up destroying the empire. Not immediately, by any means. I mean, the dynasty still had around a century left. But, as Granger puts it, the usurpation of Antiochus IV and his subsequent actions began the process of disintegration. It's also the first time a Seleucid king had pulled something as shady as murdering an infant rival. Antiochus likely spent the first couple years getting the local satraps on board. In 173, he sent emissaries to Rome with a lavish payment, supposedly part of his father's indemnity, and an offer to renew the Treaty of Apamea. The gesture was well-received, mainly since it let the Romans focus their energies on a brewing war with Macedon. Antiochus also established an alliance with his partner in crime, semi-literally, King Eumenes II of Pergamon. All of which meant the picture in the West was starting to look pretty rosy. So, hey, who's up for a Sixth Syrian War? Like I mentioned, a clique of officials had taken the reins of Egyptian power, and they convinced the court that Coel Syria was vulnerable. In preparation, the three young royals, Ptolemy VI, Cleopatra II, and Ptolemy VIII, were elevated to joint rulers of Egypt in 170 BC. And yes, there's a reason Ptolemy VIII was called Ptolemy VIII and not Ptolemy VII, and I'll get to that down the road. Actually, his nickname is more fun anyway. It's Fizcon, which translates to potbelly. Antiochus IV got wind of their plans and launched a preemptive invasion of Egypt, which is a pretty big deal since it's the first attack launched by the Seleucids on the Ptolemies' home turf. It also made this the only Syrian war not fought on Syrian territory. The surprise attack was a major success, 
and quickly rolled up Ptolemaic forces all the way back to Alexandria. The senior royal, the 16-year-old Ptolemy VI, left the city to negotiate with Antiochus, who was, after all, his uncle. Although, yeah, Antiochus had just killed his other nephew. So, anyway, the two reached an agreement. But the rowdy Alexandrines said hell no, and proclaimed Ptolemy's younger brother, the 12-year-old Potbelly, as their one and only true king. Which led to the very bizarre situation of Ptolemy VI joining Antiochus IV in besieging his brother in Alexandria. Before too long, they called off the siege, and Antiochus IV withdrew back to Syria. While Potbelly and his sister Cleopatra kept power in Alexandria, Ptolemy VI was installed in Memphis as basically a Seleucid client king. Antiochus also kept direct control of Pelusium, just in case he ever needed to come back. And now that he'd had some experience dealing with the convoluted world of Egyptian politics, Antiochus felt kind of almost ready to start engaging with Jerusalem. The issue of the moment was the Jewish high priesthood. The previous office holder, Onias III, had been a Yahweh traditionalist, who traced his lineage all the way back to the Jewish release from Babylonian captivity during the reign of Cyrus the Great. Antiochus had recently replaced him with a more religiously flexible priest named Jason, who was apparently popular with the people, then with an outright Hellenizer named Menelaus. Menelaus then proceeded to murder Onias, and Jason, fearing he might be next, returned to Jerusalem, sent Menelaus packing, and reclaimed the role of high priest. It was a reasonable case of self-defense, but was also in defiance of Antiochus's orders. And the real deal-breaker, Jason had suspected Ptolemaic ties. According to the version in 2 Maccabees, Antiochus set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those they met and slay those who took refuge in their houses. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. Menelaus was restored to the priesthood, and the temple treasury was looted for good measure. And I, for one, anticipate zero resentment and no further problems from Judea. By 168 BC, all three Ptolemaic siblings had reconciled, which meant Antiochus no longer had his puppet, which meant it was time for another invasion. Which meant, once again, the Ptolemies were soon rolled up all the way back to Alexandria. This was pretty much Antiochus's best chance to incorporate Egypt into the Seleucid Empire. Though, as Granger points out, doing so would shift the center of gravity west and leave the eastern satrapies vulnerable. But in the end, it wasn't really an option anyway, because guess who chose this very moment to show back up on the doorstep? 
Rome had spent the better part of the past four years fighting King Perseus of Macedon, the successor of Philip V. But in 168, at the Battle of Pydna, Perseus was finally defeated. So, given their very recent experience, the Romans had exactly zero interest in allowing the formation of a new Macedonian supergroup. So they sent a former consul named Gaius Papilius Lanus to have a little chat. Now, you need to understand that Antiochus IV had spent ten years as a Roman hostage. He felt he understood the Romans pretty well. And when Papilius rolled up in Alexandria, Antiochus was all, I got this. Which basically sets up one of my all-time favorite scenes. One lovingly captured in exquisite detail by both Livy and Polybius. Antiochus strolled up with his hand extended, and Papilius handed him a senatorial decree, and told him to read it. Like, right now. And, okay, kind of rude, but Antiochus was fine to negotiate, and offered to review it with his advisors and give the Romans his reply. Upon which, and really, it's hard to express how much I love this, Papilius took a stick he was carrying, walked up to Antiochus, and dragged the stick in a slow circle around the gobsmacked king. He then basically told Antiochus, Look, I totally understand this is a very important decision, so please take all the time you need. Just one thing, don't even think of stepping out of that circle until you give me your answer. And again, as a wise friend once told me, if you're ever forced to eat a crap sandwich, there's little point in taking small bites. Antiochus did not want a war with Rome, so he likely put on his warmest smile and responded that he'd happily do whatever the Senate demanded. Which, it turned out, was evacuate all captured Ptolemaic territory. Which is basically the story of how Rome saved the Ptolemaic dynasty. At least until, you know. Antiochus slowly retired from Egypt, looting as he went. Then used the funds to throw himself a quasi-triumph at Daphne, near Jerusalem. While he was there, he accepted the petition of a group of Hellenizing Jews to ban traditional Jewish practices and install a statue of Zeus in the Temple of Jerusalem. But again, I can't stress this enough, I anticipate zero resentment and no future problems from Judea. I mean, okay, there was a minor guerrilla war flaring up under a guy named Judah Maccabee, but really, that should fizzle out in no time. Like Seleucus I in northern Syria and Antiochus I in Anatolia, Antiochus IV patronized cities and encouraged settlement in the recently annexed territories of Coel Syria, including Judea, something the Ptolemies had never really done. He also fathered two more children by a concubine, or possible second royal wife, named Antiochus with an I who were called Alexander and Laodice. He even devoted the tax revenue of two Cilician cities to finance their upkeep, which I guess is sweet, but also annoyed the citizens so much that they rebelled, at least until more Seleucid troops arrived.
In 165, with the West secure, Antiochus IV set out from Antioch with a body of soldiers. He left his eldest son, the eight-year-old Antiochus, behind in the care of a military commander named Lysias. Granger suggests that the expedition's goal was reinforcing or recovering the positions his father had attained by compelling the renewed submission of Armenia and the Persian Gulf region. He may have also been hoping to counter some recent moves by the Parthians. We can make some guesses regarding his route, but all we know for sure is where things ended. As I mentioned in Bloodline episode B34, in 164 BC, Antiochus IV entered Elemius and tried to loot the local temple of Artemis Nanaya, which was similar to what his father had done at the nearby Temple of Bel. But this time, the locals were tipped off, came to defend the temple en masse, and convinced him to leave it alone. Shortly afterwards, in the city of Tabai, Antiochus IV was taken by an unknown disease and died at the age of 51. What exactly did he leave behind? Well, he had a named successor back in Syria in the care of a senior officer, which was pretty good. But unfortunately, it was only one piece of the puzzle. On his deathbed, Antiochus passed his royal insignia to a military commander named Philip, who seemed to think this made him the young heir's regent. There was also Antiochus's concubine, Antiochus, and her children Alexander and Laodice. And, seemingly forgotten far away in Rome, was a tactical nuke by the name of Demetrius, eagerly waiting for any opportunity to reclaim his rightful throne. This, then, is the beginning of our story. But I'm not going to start it off in Syria or in Rome. Instead, I'm going to start it off in Alexandria in the same year as Antiochus's death, with the birth of a young Ptolemaic princess named Cleopatra Thea. (laughs) 